Welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. I'm your host, Stella Bales. For any new listeners who don't know what to expect, in each episode, I interview an expert on an emerging area of public relations. I get to the facts, but I leave out the jargon. It's a podcast about marketing, but it's in plain language. No, really, it is. (laughs) Welcome back to all of my regular listeners too. If any of you have any comments or questions, just tweet me at Stella Bales. And don't forget to subscribe on Spotify and on iTunes, whatever you listen on at the end of the episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. Now, adapting key messages for different markets is always a challenge for any global comms lead or head of PR. But how do you go about tackling key messages and adapting them when your subject is viewed culturally very differently in different markets. So, for example, the dog meat festival in China, how do you go about creating key messages for animal welfare on that for the Western world versus the Chinese market? This is just one of the challenges that Bev Boyle, who's a global head of media at the World Animal Protection Organization, has to deal with, which is why I had to go and meet her to find out more. Bev, who's the former head of news at Bernardo's, has really played a pivotal part in all news around animal welfare recently and on a global basis. Her and her team have worked tirelessly to create campaigns to raise awareness around animal welfare, but not just raise awareness. They really are trying to inspire big change as well. It's actually one of those campaigns that I first became aware of World Animal Protection. It was the Stop Tui from Profiting from Dolphin Cruelty campaign that I saw on Instagram and I had to go and research more and I actually reshared it as well. So it was amazing to go and meet Bev, find out more about the strategy of that campaign and importantly, how it's going and whether it has actually made change. As well as tackling cultural differences in messaging, Bev also really gets into how her global teams have adapted in the change of modern media, how we all consume modern media and how media teams work. In fact, they're now responding to any animal welfare story within 60 minutes. Hear more about that. It's an incredible dedication to make to journalists. She also gets into measurement with me, of course, really because one of their biggest KPIs is trying to encourage huge global corporate organizations and especially travel companies on a global scale to make changes to their products. So when that's one of your KPIs, how do you go about measuring the different outputs of your campaign to try and move the dial on that large KPI? Incredible measurement process in place there. Bev also talks about the current financial climate and how that is affecting the whole charity sector. But she talks about the changes that her team have made and the efficiencies that they've made, which really has great tips for anyone working in the PR industry right now, not just in the charity sector. So without further ado, here is Bev. Bev, welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for having me. So you're at the World Animal Protection Organisation and I just can't wait to find out more. And I first became really aware of the organisation when I saw your Stop Tui Profiting From Dolphin Cruelty campaign. Now, I saw some content on Instagram it really drew me in. I shared it and posted it on mine at Instagram. And then there was a number of organisations that were sharing that post. And so I wanted to find out who was behind it. And then that's yeah. when I came across you guys. 
first of all, how is that campaign going? Because I really, I was yeah. really drawn to it. Right. And, what, and, and also, what is the objective behind that? I think it's yeah. a really good understanding then to to yeah. see what your organisation does. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's it's a great example, isn't it, of a campaign that is both motivating for the public and like public engagement and making sure that we are helping to educate future tourists. And as part of the Real Responsible Tourism campaign, it's looking at companies who are still profiting from dolphin exhibitions, dolphin Mm -hmm. shows that still happen in 2023, sadly. And I think that tourists quite often will buy these kind of shows and, you know, kind of opportunities because they're being sold by household names mm. like Tui Group. And, you know, it and must Tui be Group, safe if they're doing it. It does feel, you know, you've got mm. that that kind of recommended household name selling you something and it's like they wouldn't sell that if it involved cruelty. But the difficulty is that those types of dolphin shows do involve cruelty. There are over 400 dolphins and orcas in shows that are sold by Tui Group alone. And if you think of the other travel companies who are still involved as well, it's clearly like an opportunity for us to help to educate the public, you know, and give them the information so that they can make a more informed decision and also be able to talk to those companies. And what we try to do is bring the data, the science and the facts behind the animal centre You know, we know that these animals think and feel and we want to try to change that industry. So it is more about seeing wildlife in a kind of wild situation. And those opportunities exist all over the world. So this is a great campaign to help to kind of highlight that. And actually, we've already had great success. So we've had over 100,000 signatures on our petition in the UK alone, which has been amazing. And last week, we emailed the CEO of the TUI group. Group and his senior leadership team to let them know and share comments from TUI staff who are concerned that they are still selling. So it's great because this campaign has managed to kind of break through to the staff members who work there and obviously who care and want to work for a brand who they believe in. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And we've obviously got, you know, kind of this campaign, it follows on from the success of a campaign that we had with Expedia Group and they no longer sell tickets to dolphin attractions, which is amazing. amazing. And it's, you know, it's not about being antagonistic in our approach. It's really about being kind of reasonable, setting out the facts and then trying to appeal to them to demonstrate that if you offer tourists an alternative, they will take that if they know it doesn't involve animal cruelty. Mm. So the Expedia example there, amazing success, yep. objective achieved. Yeah. From start to finish, where does something like that emerge from? And can you talk us through how you then set about what kind of comms that you do to write then Expedia, the end Expedia and not selling those tickets anymore? Exactly. So it it will follow on from, I mean, we obviously have a really kind of expert programmes team at World Animal Protection working on both food systems, so everything factory farming and wildlife. And then what we will do is work with our programmes colleagues to look at the kind of the systems that we want to change. And quite often it's about making kind of the biggest impact 
on kind of animal cruelty. So we're, you know, obviously we are involved in some more small scale rescues that might involve a handful of animals that we've worked closely with. But ultimately, we want to make the biggest change to the most animals possible. And that will involve us sitting down with the team to look at the systems we want to change. So, you know, kind of wildlife tourism being a really key one, we can see in in countries like Bali, that industry is still really rife. And there are so many different attractions and people will fly into Bali specifically wanting to go and hold monkeys, Mm. um, drink civic coffee, please don't. And things like that, which obviously involve animal cruelty, you know, kind of from start to finish of of that process. And so we're working with the teams to make sure we're identifying, you know, kind of where that cruelty exists, kind of how we can make a difference, and then involving the comms team and, and all the comms functions that that involves. So we will have a team who will create content that might be going out on location and capturing on video, case studies, looking at the shows, being able to bring back those visuals that demonstrate some of that cruelty so you can see what we're talking about. That's what I saw in the dolphin campaign. Exactly. It's that. It's having that that really striking visual. And Mm. as you know, sometimes a picture can speak louder than Mm. words. And so that's a really key part. Content is huge in terms of everything that might team do as a media team, they want to be able to share not only the the facts and figures via a press release, but they need to have strong imagery, strong videos, and also they need to be able to, you know, kind of reinforce that with spokespeople and people who understand this industry inside out and can talk Mm. with that expertise. You've talked about Bali as an example and the fact that there's travel and tourism issues. Mm -hmm. Now, these campaigns will be global. How do you deal with cultural differences in different countries, especially when you're trying to communicate issues that might be perceived quite differently in different countries? Absolutely. Really good question. And we've got 12 offices globally and in all the continents. And what we try to do and I try to do is make sure my team are communicating with the nearest country office to the location. So we've obviously got an office in Thailand, an office in China and Brazil, etc., where you've got some of the big issues, the big animal cruelty issues that Mm. we're talking about. And I would always directly liaise with that team to make sure that we're taking on the understanding and the knowledge that they have on a kind of local level. So, you know, what are the people thinking locally? And quite often it's it's livelihoods. So it's like you can't just take that industry away because you're leaving whole communities without a livelihood. So again, we worked with communities and looking at alternative livelihoods. So many years back, the organisation ended bear dancing in Pakistan. And that was about going in and working with communities to show them alternatives and look at how they would raise an income for that family. So it's a really holistic view. It's not just about kind of saying this must stop. It's really trying to make sure that we are thinking of it from all angles and you know and also when we're working with the corporates it's like what is going to make that corporate switch and change their mind because ultimately it's about their bottom line and quite often it's demonstrating that their customers would like something different and you know for the travel companies if they're able to sell opportunities to responsible to wildlife tourism 
their customers will buy that because they will see that as something that is, you know, kind of responsible, something that they want potentially their young families to grow up seeing animals in the wild rather than in cages or in cruel activities. Mm. The local communities is really interesting. So is that still the Animal World Protection Organisation doing that kind of communications or do you work with other organisations on the ground? Exactly that. So we will work with organisations on the ground. We will have, um, you know, it might be kind of potential local governments that we're working with. It will be like local NGOs on the ground. And we will always be trying to tap into the greatest knowledge base. And how do we make kind of genuine contact with communities, you know, where these kind of wildlife situations are happening. And clearly, if we're not on the ground, we need to know who is. So, you know, for example, in Ukraine, when the war started, a lot of supporters were contacted us to say, you know, how can we help? There are zoos, there are animals, there are, you know, kind of, um, you know, clearly a lot of welfare kind of opportunities there. How do we get involved? And then it was looking at the, you know, the kind of the recommended organisations. So who are the accredited NGOs on the ground? Is there a coalition charity who we know we've worked with before who we can recommend? And it's, you know, especially where we don't have the expertise, who can we refer them to. And I think, you know, I use that tactic in PR as well. If I have to say no to a journalist, which I hate doing, I always want to be able to say, look, we don't work on this subject. However, this person does. And if I've got a name, telephone number, email address, Mm. all the better. You know, they will then think, actually, this has been a really useful point of contact for me and I'll come back. So Mm. it's trying to use that and we use that with supporters. It's trying to always signpost them to whoever we think can help. It's always the comms team who have the access to the amazing network, isn't it? It always is. And if we don't know, we'll know someone who does. And that's that's the way we work. So you're doing a lot of changing of thoughts and opinions, yeah. which is is an objective in many areas of PR, yeah. but this is the biggest sort of shift in in opinions yeah. that I've experienced, especially when it's in different within different cultures and different countries. Yeah. How do you go about tracking that and measuring that, especially when it's could be a corporate, it could yeah. be local communities? Yeah. Exactly. And I think kind of the tracking and measuring is a really important part of of everything we do, because we need to make sure that we're learning and evaluating as we go. Everything will evolve. Everything needs to be agile. And we're making sure that we are monitoring. So, you know, kind of we'll have set targets. It will be like mainstream influential media titles that we know are going to be key to our audiences. So have we hit those titles? Next, we'll be working with our social team. And it's like, what's the engagement? level like are people you know liking commenting sharing you know kind of is this breaking through is it doing exactly what we need it to do and then finally it's the you know the kind of the meaningful bit which is are we breaking through with the the stakeholders the corporates that we need to be talking to and are they coming back asking for meetings wanting further information from us kind of actually wanting to have a dialogue with us is really important and ultimately 
that is the way we are going to make change. It's about trying to break through with all of those different audiences, but doing it in a way that does not alienate or, you know, kind of make them want to switch off and not hear anything else. With the corporates that you have made progress with, Expedia, for example, when they do make those changes, do they continue to work with you guys? Like, do you celebrate them in the end or is it that, good, you've made the change, let's move on? No, no. Like with Expedia, when that news came through, you know, it was a huge kind of celebratory moment internally because that was, you know, clearly something that the team had worked really long and hard to make a difference on. And then we'd work with them, say, actually, we're going to put out a PR to say Expedia have moved, this has changed and we want to celebrate you and let our audiences know because people have followed us. They've been following the issues. They've potentially been hounding Expedia or or other corporates on their social channels to say, you know, you must stop selling. Mm. So we need to kind of then look at informing all of our audiences and making sure that we do that as a kind of joint communications with Expedia and potentially, you know, quote them in our press release and them us because it's a joint involvement. It's definitely not something we've done alone. It's always about working together. I've got an interest now into the TUI campaign and, yeah. and you know, I would like to know because I've, whether to book with them again in the future because at the moment I wouldn't. Yeah, so exactly. it's and a I good example I, of their live. Definitely. And I think that, you know, lots of our supporters or people who've come to that post have said exactly the same. Mm. They, you know, they would think twice because they want to be spending their hard-earned cash on in a company that they know is being responsible and always looking to do the right thing. And I know it takes time to make change, but even making that commitment to change is a good first step and setting a milestone and saying, bye, this 2024, 25, we will phase this out, I think is is a good first commitment. Mm. I just want to go back to some of the countries that you mentioned that you've got teams in. Yes. Um, you mentioned Bali and Thailand yeah. and China. Yeah. I've loved Thailand. I've been there a few times and I remember the first time leaving the airport and being presented with the sheets in the big sort of plastic sheets of tourist attractions and yes. they were all involved animals and we couldn't believe it. It was like, you know, the sleeping tigers and all sorts of things and it must be such a shift to try and get that community to change the way of the thinking and, and selling and I just want to sort of get into the, the PR aspect of that like with key messages yeah. normally with a global campaign you sort of share the key messages and they don't really adapt that much yeah do yours look completely different when they go to different countries and how do you work yeah. with that absolutely and I think that you know that for me we will as an international team be presenting the country offices a press pack so that will be you know press release Q&A spokespersons key messages like fully intending that they will make that their own because the only way they're going to break through with their local media is if they are then translating if they need to, but mentioning the local attractions, you know, why is this relevant to an audience in Thailand? Why is it relevant to an audience in China? And they need to be able to localise that and they need to look at what works for their audience. And Mm. so I fully expect that although some of the key messages may be the same, that they are then using their local knowledge and experience to make that much more relevant for their audiences and their media. An example is Every year, Yulin Dog Meat Festival happens in China, which is kind of has received lots of media attention. I think more recently they've tried to stop focusing on that because they don't want to give it the attention anymore. Mm. 
but Ricky Gervais, other high-profile celebrities, will always call that out. And we will issue a statement globally about kind of how barbaric that is. But we will also link in with our China team to make sure that we are listening to them and their, you know, the kind of the situation on the ground. And they will inform us of what's happening locally in terms of dog meat trade. So, you know, during the pandemic, two cities completely banned the sale and consumption of dog meat. Only during the, the, those months. So, it, so they are still banned because there's obviously huge zoonotic risk, public health, as well as the animal cruelty. So, you know, looking at, at the, the kind of whole situation with Yulin Dog Meat Festival, but we know that dog meat is kind of a dying trend in China and that the young people in China are aghast and do not want that to be happening. Okay. So it is changing. And I think that we as an organisation, and I'm sure many organisations who have kind of country offices, you know, we can't work in isolation. We need to be listening and looking at the audiences on the ground in those locations to fully understand, you know, kind of what is the situation and when will this change and how can we influence that? But meanwhile, our supporters want to know that it's, you know, something that we don't approve of. We have an office there, but we do not approve of that for the multitude of reasons that I've just outlined. It's a really interesting example because, I mean, I'm stating the obvious, but Western world loves dogs. And then that is only increasing every year, isn't it? Our love of dogs. But it's a very different, it's it's a different 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 opinion. But it's really interesting that you're saying that younger people are starting to change that opinion and that feeling. Mm -hmm. How do you go about finding out that kind of insight? Do you just get it from people there or is there tools that you use? Yeah, with that particular incident situation, it will be the country office who are leading on that kind of data generation. And uh, it might be that they are working with local polls. They are talking to other organisations. There will be other organisations within China who are kind of also looking at that issue. But generally by commissioning polls on the ground to talk to, you know, the kind of who is the demographic that we need to be speaking to and what is the situation. And the same for kind of traditional medicine within China as well. There are obviously plant alternatives. However, there is still a kind of very small proportion and it tends to be an older generation who are consuming wildlife, traditional medicine products. And then that then spirals into the, you know, kind of wildlife trade and animal parts being uh, shipped around the world. Wow. It's fast, isn't it? it? It's huge. And we're talking about billions of animals who are involved and also a huge amount of money. You know, people viewing animals as products and commodities has to change. It's really, you know, well, fundamentally for us as an organisation, it's about the cruelty and the animal welfare. But we also need to be looking at human health because that's really important. Mm. And also the kind of the underground crime scenes that are often linked to, you know, the illegality of hunting particular animals and, and especially where those animals are perhaps on a kind of endangered list and should not be kind of hunted for any reason, let alone for wildlife Mm. as a traditional medicine. This podcast is brought to you by Coverage Book, the tool that creates beautifully designed reports with credible metrics you can be proud of. Head to coveragebook.com for your free trial. 
There must be so many causes that you could put your team's attention on yeah. and try and help. How on earth do you go through that decision process yeah. to say, okay, we're going to put all of our efforts for the next six months into yeah. this one? We have our global strategy because, of course, it is really difficult and there is animal cruelty everywhere you turn. But as I said, it's looking about where we can make the biggest impact and those system changes. And so our focus is on two campaign areas. One is around wildlife wildlife and kind of real responsible tourism being one of the campaigns under that wildlife programme. And the next is factory farming and food systems and trying to look at the big meat producing companies like JBS in Brazil, who are responsible for huge deforestation in the Amazon, as well as, you know, kind of very cheap meat production, which will always mean very low welfare. Mm-hmm. I think we'd need another hour to discuss that. <laughs> yes, Got the feelings of that as well. Um, and as an organisation, do you have, so before it comes down into the communications department, yes. do you have an, an objective as an organisation each year? Like, do you have like a, an amount of animals that you want to try and save? Or is there a sort of a key organisation objective? So I think within as the organisational ob- objectives, they kind of ladder down to very specific. So we want to move a certain number of corporates. We want to have this reach with our audiences. It will be very kind of specific. You know, for my team, it's always about looking at kind of the growth of PR and media. And obviously, it's a really kind of fast paced, changing landscape. And it's constantly kind of coming back as a group of, you know, kind of 12 country offices and saying, what do we want to shift this year? What has changed? How do we need to change Mm -hmm. as a team to keep growing and making sure that we are constantly hitting the mainstream and influential media that we've set as targets at the beginning of the year? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that we do as an organisation is look at rapid response and we will kind of see breaking news and we want to respond to that within 60 minutes is the objective that we set. And my view is that if you don't get something out within 60 minutes of something breaking, then it's gone. It's done. I think probably for my team, because they're working with international news wires, we want to make sure that we are the animal welfare spokesperson within that piece. And sometimes we will see that something's landed on Reuters and we will see that there's no mention of animal welfare and and where there should be a voice there. And we'll contact the journalist and say, we can get something to you in 60 minutes. Would that work for you? Have you got an example of something that's happened like that that's landed what kind of animal story would yeah. you be responding yeah. to there's i mean there's oh, there's so many but one that happened more recently was gucci fashion campaign so you know obviously looking at whether or not that's something that we would want to be commenting on but they were using wild animals within their a new fashion campaign there were tigers and it was kind of popularizing the idea that you can have a wild animal as a pet and obviously there are certain parts of the world where people do and we would say that you absolutely should not. That Mm. is not good for that animal. And I think there's something really uncomfortable about thinking that you can just take a tiger or a lion and have them as a pet in your home. Mm. And so we just wanted to put out a really simple statement to say, actually, Gucci, like, you know, you can do this in a much 
better, more ethical way. It's that kind of the idea of luxury and attaching a kind of ownership of a wild animal to that message. It makes me really uncomfortable. And so we instantly responded, issued a statement and that was picked up really widely. All of our country offices issued that. So wide scale pickup and um, they dropped that ad campaign. Really? They did. Wow. We will never know how much influence we had but I'd like to think we were a little chink in their armour. Especially if it went across multiple yeah, countries. Yeah, exactly. So, and it was, again, it's that kind of really quick response to go, actually, we've just seen this land. And the campaign was everywhere. So, you know, kind of no matter what I kind of opened that morning in terms of tabs on my screen, there was the kind of, um, the advert was looming on every page. And it was huge. They'd obviously invested a lot of money into that campaign. But there are moments like that where it's, you know, kind of actually the association of of wildlife as pets mm. is not one that we should be glamorising. So your rapid response then, was that within the hour after the ad campaign went live? So we don't know when that exactly went live, but a member of the team, my wider comms team, had flagged the ad and said, I've just seen this. Have you? And should we respond? Yeah. And then again, it's, it's that kind of assessment about, you know, is this something that our organisation should be commenting on and trying to think about, you know, does it resonate with any of our campaigns? Is there kind of messaging that we can pull from our campaigns? And I think that, you know, kind of nine times out of 10, we can connect and make that association. And obviously there'll be incidents like Yulin where we no longer work on dogs and animals in communities as a kind of campaigning issue. However, where there is animal welfare atrocity or issue, then I think we absolutely should be commenting. We are world animal protection. I think we have a right to talk about any form of animal cruelty, whether it belongs within one of our campaign asks or not. The Gucci example, does that tend to be how most of your campaigns Again, you see something, you do a rapid response, and then do you sort of build continuous content until something is changed, or is that just one line of activity? It will be that. So, in that instance, that would be a kind of one opportunity to react. And as I said, it may then kind of lead into a wider campaign. It might lead into us talking about wildlife as pets. We do have a campaign that looked at exotic pets and the kind of illegal trades, grey parrots being shipped in on Ethiopian airlines, etc., was one of the campaigns that we'd worked on to kind of, again, to look at some of those corporates and say, actually, do you know the huge cruelty that's involved just because somebody in the UK wants to own a grey parrot? Lots of them die in transport. Mm. It's, you know, the way they are stored and kept and actually breeding those animals for the intention of being owned as a pet is, incredibly cruel mm-hmm. and so it's just being able to kind of tap into those moments and say actually I think there's something that here that we can then bring into our kind of global strategy and campaign and we can you know kind of look at how we can make an impact whilst remembering we have limited resource we are an NGO and so you know as much as we'd love to work on everything that crosses our desk we really can't we really need to look at where to best play place our effort with the resource that we have. Can we talk about that? How are you funded and where does the funding 
funding come from? Yeah. How how's your team? Yeah. You know, have yeah. you had to reduce recently yeah. with the way that the world is? Absolutely. How's it going? Really good question. Yep. As you know, kind of most NGOs, it's about public funding, fundraising. We will, of course, occasionally have philanthropic grants that come through. The fundraising team work incredibly hard to make sure that we are reaching both kind of individual givers as well as the kind of larger kind of corporate gifts that may come in. But we have to be very specific about, you know, kind of where that money is going. We have a responsibility and also the benefit of that gift. So what has happened, what change has happened as a result of that? And sometimes that is about kind of bringing back case studies to show where we've had projects that are happening or money that we are then allocating to projects on the ground in some of those communities. What difference has that made? What's the change? And I think that's really important. We always have a responsibility. It's the good stewardship. Everything I do within my team is about making sure that any budget that's been spent, so from the media monitoring agency that we use through to the media database that we use, those kind of integral services as part of a press function, but it will always be looking at the procurement process and the fact that we need to demonstrate everything that I recommend that the organisation invests in for my team. Um, is that good value for money? And have we looked at other service providers and mm. constantly demonstrating that it is, uh, you know, kind of it's worth that investment as an organisation? And in terms of have we seen cuts, my team is 50% leaner than it was back in 2020. Wow. But I think if you look at newsrooms, you can see see that newsrooms have had the same cuts yeah. and quite often when we are talking to some of you know even some of the really big brand named media they will say that they've got much smaller numbers on their newsroom floors and they are working bigger beats as a result so you know where you'd have one person leading on a you know kind of environmental work now they are picking up a number of different beats and I think mm. it's the same for my team they are working with fewer resource, basically. Mm. Do you have any objectives in your communications where you need to encourage donations as well as what comes out about the causes? So encouraging fundraising. Yeah. Actually, my team haven't led so much on fundraising calls. I think that has predominantly come via social media channels. So we will have appeals and it might be that we've been involved in a particular rescue and we know that the rescue and so, for example, there are a couple of bears recently that went to our sanctuary in Romania and they were transferred from Vietnam. And we work with other organisations on the ground in Vietnam as well. So we always making sure that then we have the funding to keep those animals within that situation. So, you know, we might be part funding their care. It might be continuous funding and we will always be transparent with supporters. It's like, you know, this is what we will pay for now for X number of years to make sure that animal not only had the safety of the travel from, you know, where they were rescued into the sanctuary, but then their veterinary bills, their food going forward, etc. It's not just about a quick grab and drop situation. There will be long-term care involved. Wow. And so it's really making sure that supporters, if they want to, have an opportunity to be part of, you know, the kind of the long-term care of an animal in a sanctuary, which is really motivating. And mm. I think it's always nice 
when we're able to go, you know, and again, using our social media channels, going back to some of those situations and those animals to say, actually, this is how Zuma the leopard is uh, yeah. in Brazil. So it's not just a kind of one communication and then you are never informed about that animal ever again. There will be kind of uh, continuations of that story. And obviously there are, you know, kind of very sad incidences when maybe an animal has not lived very long after transfer to a sanctuary and potentially they've had a lot of health conditions when they've come into the sanctuary and we knew that that they would have quite a limited life, but we wanted to make them as comfortable as possible for the kind of latter part of their life. And again, it's being brave and not ever concealing that as you know as an organization we are talking about kind of saving lives of animals and sometimes that does not end in the way that we would like it to so it's mm. always being honest in those communications as well as sharing the success stories it's a really transparent way to communicate with your support mm. base and um, you've talked about some of the challenges of well, the, where you need to stretch budgets and funding. You were at Bernardo's before, weren't yes, you, this I role? Was. Have you seen any sort of trends or shared challenges, even though that was a very different role, very different organisation, yeah. just in the sort of charity and yeah. non-profit industry? Yeah. Are there sort of shared challenges, especially right now? It, they are such different kind of press office environments. I think that the advantage I had when I worked at Bernardo's as the head of news was that we were a very recognisable brand. I had a much bigger team just for a kind of UK press office because we were incredibly busy and that, you know, came with its own challenges. And so we had an out of office system and a rotor of staff working on that. And actually, if you were on that at workday evening or at the weekend, you knew you were going to work that. There was never a quiet weekend. And because I wanted to demonstrate to my team that it was, you know, this was teamwork. It was all hands on deck. I was on that rotor and the number of times I'd get 3am calls and wow. on a Saturday or Sunday morning and then have to leap into action, get somebody into a studio. It was, you know, I think the challenge there was that we were so stretched, we sometimes didn't have enough spokespeople. And I think especially when you are disturbing someone's evening or weekend, there's only so many times I think you can go back to the same people. Although, if they're the expert, then it's really important, I think, for those spokespeople that they have a willingness to participate. And mm. as I said, I hate saying no to journalists. And I think, you know, it's always really difficult if you're in a tight spot and you've got a spokesperson who is unavailable or basically tired and not wanting to go to a studio. It's like, actually, this is really important and this is how we make a difference. Mm. So I think for Bernardo's, the challenge we had was just how incredibly busy we were and trying to maintain that and not burn out the team members who were kind of working incredibly hard during the day and then sometimes having to do an evening rotor or a weekend rotor. And we obviously, you know, there was kind of time off for anybody who had worked, but then you are balancing a very busy daytime with potentially staff member down. And I think at World Animal Protection, we have 
in some ways the opposite where, you know, we rebranded, we were the World Society for the Protection of Animals. We've rebranded to World Animal Protection. So we're still a relatively new brand. And I think it's beginning to build that brand name and reputation. And I will always say to my team that it's, you know, you are as good as your last contact with a journalist. You need to make sure that you you are leaving them with a really good impression of how we operate, which is that we will always do our kind of utmost to deliver on anything that they've asked for. So as I said, even if we don't work on that issue, I want to be able to go back and say, this is the person you need to speak to. Here's their number. And then they've had a really good interaction with us. And again, if they've asked for comment or statement, I want to get that to them within 60 minutes because, Mm. you know, they're on a deadline and equally we need to have the answers. Mm. And it might be that you've got a kind of team of experts who are then rushing around trying to get the answer from the location or an NGO that we might be working working with in a different part of the world, but we need to move quickly and make sure that we are not missing deadlines and that we're always, you know, kind of standing up our reputation as a really solid press function. It's great advice for any comms professional, I think, in any area, but especially your area. Do not make people wait. No, (laughs) I really could talk to you all day, but I've got one last question for you. And I'm not sure if you could build on any of the examples that you've already mentioned, because you've mentioned so many where you have made such a big difference. But in your whole career, is there any campaign or calls that you've worked on where you feel so proud and PR has really made that difference. Yeah. Honestly, there are so many examples. (laughs) I'll use a more recent example and it relates to the travel tourist industry. And we were working with, it was to move Thomas Cook and the campaign was called Before They Book. And we were looking at trying to influence any kind of customers of travel companies before they went online to book their holiday. So we were intercepting via Google searches and we had a huge campaign involving an animation. We had an animator called Nuko Brain who worked on, and this was looking at elephants and elephant riding. And it probably dates back to... 2016, I'd say, I'd hazard a guess. And we had an amazing animation. We had offices around the world who were then able to get really good pro bono or discounted ad space in airports in Beijing, in, you know, kind of prominent locations in Canada and the US, etc. So, and I think that as an NGO, you always know that you're going to have very limited spend on anything that is above the line advertising and it's always incredibly precious so you're looking for opportunities where people will see and with that ad campaign we were on the south bank we had a chalk 3d elephants on the ground that were chained to talk to members of the public and i think for me it's always nice being out of the office and actually kind of being able to interact with people who are not necessarily supporters who don't necessarily know the issues. But are booking those holidays. But are booking those holidays, exactly that. And it was really great to be able to talk to people cold on the streets of the South Bank and, you know, kind of engage with them, talk to them about the issues. They all wanted to pose with the amazing 3D chalk pictures that were on the floor of the South Bank. 
And just the engagement on that campaign, we launched on World Animal Day in October and the traction was huge. And Thomas Cook did eventually stop selling those rides. And it just felt like it was such a collaborative campaign where, you know, it was beyond sitting at a desk talking to journalists. Obviously, the media coverage was great at the time, but everything about it, the use of social media, the use of being on the ground in locations, having that branding everywhere in key cities around the world. And we actually, at the end of that campaign, were nominated for a PR Week award. Uh, we're a nominee at, for the best global in-house team. Mm. And I think that, you know, anyone will know working in-house that there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And if ever you even receive a nomination for something like that, it's just a really nice moment as a team to say we all are part of this. There was a lot of hard work that went in. And not only did we see significant change from corporates at that time, and thank you to all of our supporters who bombarded Thomas Cook's social channels, to the point that I think probably anybody working for Thomas Cook at that point maybe despised us. But it was all good in the end, just to say that that is how you run a campaign. It's mm. it's really about all of those different functions mm. coming together um, and a visibility kind of on and off the page. Truly understanding the booker, the consumer, the person. Yes. Because when you mentioned the Google search, in my past PR career, many listeners will know that I yeah. did work in search and PR. So yeah. really really understanding the person and not just staying in the PR role and just talking to journalists is, yeah. is the way that you actually make change. And I think that's absolutely brilliant, yeah. the examples that you've just exactly. used there. For me, a great privilege to be able to actually talk to people and hear from them directly. Yeah. That's what you need to be doing. Amazing. Bev, we've got to wrap up, even though I'm going to carry on the conversation <laughs> even when we go off air. How can people follow the World Animal Protection Organisation and also any PR people or journalists who are listening would like to connect to you how can yep. we connect to find out more about our work if you go to www.worldanimalprotection.org that will take you to the international page and then you can find all of the campaign actions live there anybody wanting to connect with me I am on Twitter at BevNot and alternatively, you can find my details on the website, Bev Boyle Brilliant. at worldunprotection.org. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks to you. That was the PR Resolution podcast. If you want to learn more about emerging areas of PR, join the PR Resolution and head to blog.coveragebook.com. Stay in touch by following me on Twitter at Stella Bales and make sure you subscribe to the series to get the next episode.